Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. There's a long line of tribes waiting for federal recognition. If they gain that recognition, they'll have access to all the sovereign rights and legal acknowledgements of every other tribe that they didn't have up to that point. The recognition process now takes decades of dedicated, unwavering work by the tribe, and it's often fellow tribes that work against it. Today, we'll hear from officials whose tribes are waiting for recognition. We'll get their perspectives right after the news. National Native News, I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Authorities in Wisconsin and Michigan have now signed off on the Menominee Indian Tribe's nomination of a site to the National Register of Historic Places. Danielle Kading reports that's drawn backlash from some who say it's a veiled attempt to stop the Back 40 Mine. Historic preservation boards in Wisconsin and Michigan have approved the nomination of Onam Omat. The site includes the 60 Islands area where the tribe once lived on the Menominee River. Menominee Tribal Chairman Ron Korn Sr. says it contains the tribe's dance rings and burial mounds. We're trying to protect our historic and cultural places. We're trying to protect, you know, the resting place of our ancestors. It's also where Gold Resource Corporation wants to mine gold and other metals for the Back 40 project. Michigan Republican and State Senator Ed McBroom says listing the site would add more hurdles to the permitting process. Suddenly, they're only up here to stop this mine, and this is just their latest uh, trick in the bag to do so. Corrin says the tribe is opposed to the mine, but insists the nomination is about protecting cultural resources. A mining company executive says they will avoid disturbing archaeological sites. For National Native News, I'm Danielle Kading. A group of Native people and their allies gathered outside the Kansas City football team's stadium on Monday to call on the team to change its name and end the use of Native American imagery. The NFL Monday night football game between Kansas City and the Las Vegas Raiders was played on Indigenous Peoples Day. The Kansas City team released a statement in recognition of Indigenous Peoples Day, saying in part that the team is having dialogue with local and national groups to identify ways to educate and raise awareness of American Indian Indian communities. Demonstrators say the statement to them holds no true meaning or value. Gaylene Krauser is the executive director of the Kansas City Indian Center and is one of the organizers of demonstrations held during football season. I thought their statement is just more propaganda that they put out there to make the fans believe that what they're doing is okay by Native people and it's not and, and that's why We have to come out here and and make that stand every single time so that doesn't get lost in the rhetoric. Raiders fan Christian Cuevas came over to show his support. And I've seen this on TV that you guys want to change your name, but it's real out here. And I support it. You guys should change the name. You don't hear no other team being called, you know, a Raider or the other words, you know. But it's pretty interesting, and I believe you guys should change it. Demonstrators are members of Not In Our Honor, a group of Native leaders, tribal college students, and Native community members in the greater Kansas City area. They advocate against the use of Native imagery in sports and media. 
In Native Vote News, leaders of the five largest tribes in Oklahoma on Tuesday will publicly endorse Democratic candidate Joy Hoffmeister for governor of Oklahoma. Tribes have been at odds with current Republican Governor Kevin Stitt over a number of issues, including the historic U.S. Supreme Court ruling in the McGirt case, which reaffirmed reservation boundaries. The Cherokee, Chickasaw, Muscogee, Choctaw, and Seminole nations say Hoffmeister respects tribal sovereignty and say she's committed to working with Oklahoma's nearly 40 federally recognized tribes. In a statement to press, Stitt's campaign says the governor has the support of thousands of tribal members across the state. The five tribes represent more than 800,000 tribal citizens. The tribes say they're looking to build safe communities, strong economies, a stable workforce, well-funded education, investments in infrastructure, health, wellness, families, and communities. The tribes are making the endorsement during an event in Oklahoma City. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. November is National Epilepsy Awareness Month. Call the Epilepsy and Seizures 24-7 helpline at 1-800-332-1000 to speak with an epilepsy information specialist. The Epilepsy Foundation supports this show. There's no reason to let uncertainty about the election process keep you from voting. That's why AARP created state-specific, comprehensive election guides. Learn more at aarp.org slash election guides. AARP supports this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Chinook Indian Nation held a rally on Friday urging Congress to act to grant them federal recognition. It's one of several recent events the tribe launched to raise awareness of their cause. The tribe received federal recognition briefly 20 years ago, but the next administration revoked it. The Chinook are one of many tribes around the country undergoing the lengthy process to gain sovereign status. Among other things, that status gives tribes access to federal health care benefits, infrastructure and education aid, and legal protections under the Indian Child Welfare Act. There are any number of roadblocks in the process. Today, we'll speak with officials working with their tribes to become federally recognized. But we also want to hear from you. Is your tribe working on gaining federal status? Are you familiar with the federal process? Or do you empathize with Native people who are members of non-federally recognized tribes? Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also post a comment on our social media. Our Twitter handle is 1-800-99-NATIVE. Speaking with us first from San Jose, California, is Professor Kerry Malloy. He is an assistant professor at San Jose University of Global Humanities and Indigenous Studies. He is an enrolled Yurok tribal member. Kerry, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, Kerry, I'll lead off with two questions. First, how many non-federally recognized tribes are there in California? And second, how does the lack of federal recognition impact those tribes? There are 55 unrecognized tribes in the state of California currently. 
and they're impacted by a lack of ac- the inability to access federal services. So they're not able to use all the services that recognized tribes are, the education funding, health, health funding, and economic development funding. So they're barred from that ability to, number one, access federal services. Two, it restricts their ability to exercise sovereignty. They don't have the legal authority under the United States government to exercise the sovereignty that you see federally recognized tribes operate you know, with their own police forces, their own tribal court systems, all of that. So they're restricted in their ability to actually exercise all the inherent rights that tribes have always had since the time of memorial. Mm-hmm. 55 tribes, non-federally recognized. Uh, why so many there in California? Well, California has a really long history of bad federal Indian policy, and that begins back in the 1851 and 52 with the 18 treaties that were negotiated in this state by the United States government, then unratified by the United States Senate. That left no place for tribes, no reservations for tribes. We then have the California Rancheria Act, which then began to establish small plots of land where Individuals who weren't who may and may or may not have been members of tribes were put, and then may have, may or may not have been recognized. We get into the California Termination Acts in the 1950s, where the federal government decided it wasn't going to recognize tribes anymore. It wanted to get out of the Indian business. And what happened here in California was we had 46 tribes that were terminated, lost their federal recognition. Out of that, only 27 have been restored. So we have tribes here that at one time had federal recognition and lack that. Also, we have a problem with anthropologists who wrote reports about tribes no longer existing and being extinct, which is working against the ability of tribes to become recognized. Mm -hmm. And no state recognition in California? There is no state recognition process here, no. Okay. So currently, what tribes there in California are are close to being federally recognized, and and what does that process look like for them? Well, we have two that currently have petitions uh, before the BI, the Southern Sierra Miwok Nation and Amamunsa Band of Ohlone Coast Noan Indians. The federal recognition process is extremely arduous. Uh, It requires that tribes petitioning for recognition document their existence decade by decade back to the 1900, 1900. They have to show that prior to 1900, they existed. And then on top of that, they have to document within there their relationship with the government. Then they have to turn around and document that their membership, their citizens, are descendants of those tribes. So these petitions that they put together for federal recognition are quite extensive. They're costly to put together. Sometimes the records may or may not exist or may or may not be accessible depending on where they're held. So those are the, that is a huge leap to come over and, develop, and have those financial resources to put into that type of process. Some tribes have gone another route, which is to get a member of Congress and to put, sponsor a bill to have them rec- congressionally recognized, which takes them out of the federal recognition process. Either way, they're working against a system that doesn't have a lot of access unless you have a lot of financial resources and political clout to get through it. Now, um, 
According to a 2012 GAO report, and I realize this is 10 years old, but but there were approximately 400 tribes that didn't have federal recognition. So with, what, over 560 federally recognized tribes, 400 non-federally recognized tribes, I mean, what's the answer here? I mean, do if all of these 400 tribes plus were to become federally recognized, I mean, what would that do in terms of funding and other services, other resources that are available to federally recognized tribes. I mean, is it possible to 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 have all these tribes that are waiting for federal recognition or are working towards federal recognition to get that status? It is possible. It is possible and it was going to requires determination. It requires support from both within the tribe and from without. <laughs> The economic question that you ask about, you know, can we support this is the budget for Indian affairs in the United States is 1% of 1% of 1%. It's a very minuscule amount in the larger federal budget. Expanding that could provide the funds to operate all the services and fund the tribes and do all of this. And remember that, you know, this was the agreement. When the United States began its expansion across this continent, it made an agreement with the tribes and the native people of this continent and said, we will provide these services for you. We recognize that you are nations. We recognize that you are sovereign. And we are going to, in exchange for this land, we are going to provide these services. So it is not only possible, it's part of the moral obligation that the United States agreed to when it began to expand and when it decided that it was going to take on the role of a paternal role for tribal people. Carrie, one topic we're going to talk about on the show today, and I'd like you to chime in on this, is the fact that in many cases, um, the biggest opponents for federal recognition for some of these tribes are, in fact, federally recognized tribes in those regions, neighboring tribal communities. What's your thought on that? Having seen that in action, um, it comes down to federally recognized tribes are looking economically first. They look at how is this going to impact their their abilities in economic development, their access to the budgets that come through the BIA, and they don't want to see those pots of money shrunk. The other issue comes up is who has the jurisdiction? Who gets to interact with the federal and state and local agencies and be the voice for native people? At, be the voice for native people in those conversations, for, particularly for their tribe. And how do you then have those conversations over sacred sites or areas in which human remains have been found? And who has those jurisdictions? So you do see federally recognized tribes pushing back, saying, no, we are the voice, we are the authority here. But that is an imposition from the federal government of how it wants to see tribes operate. It wants them to look and operate very much like the federal government, failing to recognize how we operated in the past, how we've traditionally operated where there was a communal discussion and functioning and doing what was best for everyone. Well, with so many um, non-federally recognized tribes, it just seems like it's it's probably impossible to think that they could all at some point be federally recognized. So are there some tribes in California that have just accepted that they will probably never gain federal recognition? And if so, how do they go forward? 
in California, I have not heard of a tribe yet that has said we're giving up. But they, they're going forward anyways by incorporating as nonprofit agencies and continuing their ability to serve their members. Through becoming a 501c3, they do have the ability to apply for grants. They do have the ability to be in the larger conversations at the local level. So we ha- we, we're seeing that. We're find, they're finding ways outside of the federal recognition process to still be able to function in a recognizable manner to the rest of the state. And that's important. The other thing they've been able to do is get acknowledgement by the California Native Heritage Commission, Native American Heritage Commission, which has now said that if you are doing developments, if you are doing construction, you're running into these sacred sites, you have that agencies and businesses have an obligation to consult with and engage with both federally and those that are unrecognized. So there are ways in which this is operating outside of that federal recognition process. It's a matter of educating the larger public that those exist. Well, Carrie, I really appreciate you starting the conversation today, and I know your time is limited, so thank you again for for joining us uh, briefly here this morning. And I know you've got a class to teach right now, so I don't want to hold you from your students. And again, folks, that's uh, Carrie Malloy, and he's a professor at San Jose University. Folks, we're talking about tribes, tribes in California, tribes in Washington State, tribes in other parts of the country that are seeking seeking federal recognition. And if you want to chime in on this discussion, please share your thoughts at 1-800-996-2848. You're listening to Native America Calling. We're back right after this break. The Department of Interior is testing out a program to provide food made by native-run companies or with indigenous ingredients to schools and prisons the department runs. We'll learn about the benefits and goals the program aims to provide, coming up on the next Native America Calling. Support by the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at Highlands University, now offering the opportunity to earn a culturally relevant clinical Master of Social Work degree without leaving your own community. This online MSW degree focuses on a small, supportive model with a clinical concentration. Students in rural areas, tribal communities, and or who live far from campus are given preference. Application deadline is October 15th at online.nmhu.edu. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're speaking with officials with tribes working on gaining federal recognition. Let's go ahead and move on to our second guest today. Uh, Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Patty Ferguson Bonney. She is the director of the Indian Legal Program and a clinical professor of law at Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. She is Point Ashie. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Patty. Oops, I don't. Patty, are you there? Yes. Can you okay. not hear me? 
Yeah, I can hear you now, Patty. I can hear you okay. loud and clear. Okay. All right. I got a little worried there. <laughs> Lost the call, but we've got you on the line, Patty. So yeah, thank you, Patty, for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Now, Patty, your tribe has been seeking federal recognition since the mid-1990s, close to 30 years. Can you tell us where you're at in the process and, and what some of these hurdles have been that's making it take so long? Sure, yeah. We've been in the process uh, since the mid-90s, and basically we started seeking recognition because we wanted to protect our land. We were having issues with the land. And of course, responding to natural disasters because the Pawnishan Indian tribe is located in the Terrebonne Basin, which is in, on the Gulf Coast of Louisiana, and it's the fastest eroding area in the United States. And um, we're in the process right now. We received an amended proposed finding um, in the mid-2000s, uh, 2008, and then the regulations changed in 2015 so there's a specific area of focus that we're focused on which is really uh, meeting the requirements for historic tribes and one of the biggest hurdles that we have is that there hasn't been primary research real primary research on louisiana tribes for many of the people who've written about louisiana tribes and so much of that work uh, skips the spanish colonial period uh, there are a lot of documents that haven't been reviewed. They're in French or Spanish. Um, and so we've been mining the archives for that information. And there's also been a misunderstanding um, of who the tribes are and uh, that we have a lot of petite nations, uh, small nations on the Mississippi River, um, in the Mississippi River Valley. And that's been misunderstood because of the lack of research in that area. And the BIA found that we descend from historical Indians, but they did not make the leap that they were historic tribes, but maybe just um, random Indians that met up in the bayou. So we're working on correcting that narrative and have to do a lot of research um, and obtain a lot of documentation. And I'm sure, as you know, the uh, other callers know, that in order to prepare a petition, you need experts on genealogy, history, um, you need um, anthropologists. So you need a lot of experts to put this material together for you. And one of the challenges that tribes on Louisiana Gulf Coast have, specifically our tribe and other tribes in Terrebonne and Lafourche Parish, is that we weren't allowed to even go to high school until the late 1960s. So a lot of our efforts are reliant on other people who have those not just education in high school, but um, graduate degrees who are experts who can help help us do this research. Well, Patty, you, you mentioned these unique problems facing Louisiana tribes and, and especially these historical records, gaps in the historical record. And exactly how far back in history do you need documentation to, to prove your, your Native American lineage to be recognized as a tribe? Yeah, so that's a really good question. In 2015, there were changes to the regulations that say that you have to prove information back at some point prior to 1900. But if you're proving historic tribe, you um, it's likely that you have to go back further to show those historic tribes and to show when they came together to form a to form a community. So we have been going back until the 
1760s, 1780s. And the big problem for Louisiana tribes is there, that the French were there and there was some things written about tribes in Louisiana, but when France came to Louisiana, they didn't populate France. Um, and then they sold it to Spain and Spain didn't. I mean, they didn't populate Louisiana and then Spain came and they didn't populate it, but they used the French people who were there before to make notes about the tribes. And they were all trying to win the tribe's allegiance and also the English who were in the area. There was So there's things written about the different tribes uh, coming to get gifts, pledging allegiance, but they may not have specific names. But even that information isn't well known or written about. And actually some people who've written about Louisiana tribes will say that, you know, for example, the Washa tribe did not exist in 1780s, but yet they're receiving gifts uh, from the Spanish colonial government. Um, so there was just basically a jump from the French colonial period to the late Louisiana period. And so those gaps really have to be filled in um, to show the history of that area so that the historic uh, connections with those tribes make sense. Now, you mentioned that um, there have been these rule changes with regard to um, how these petitions are acknowledged and, and how the process is facilitated there for federal recognition, and that was in 2015. Has it made it easier, considerably easier, for tribes to gain federal status based on these changes? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't think that there's been any tribe who's been recognized through the process under the new rule changes. It's still a lot of work to put the materials together. You still have to meet the seven criteria, um, but the, some of the threshold for uh, social and political community has changed from historical times uh, to the present to 1900 to the present. So that's helpful, um, but I guess we'll we'll see whenever the first tribes um, are evaluated under the 2015 regulations. Um, I think that the it's the same criterion, but your burden may not be as much. But there's some really important changes in the 2015 regulations. For example, endogamy, which is intermarriage, um, has been clarified on how that is conducted. And so that is helpful to our community and will help us with meeting criterion C. And that's basically intermarriage. If 50% or more of your community were marrying other community members, then you can meet that uh, criterion C and B for a certain point in time. And so that's helpful. Um, and, and changing those uh, criteria to 1900 makes sense. So there was a lot of changes from historical times to the present to 1900. Um, I think that's helpful. They also will allow you an opportunity to question. Um, if you go through phase one and um, you can ask questions to the BIA, the OFA staff who conduct the research, which before you couldn't do that. I don't think anyone has gone through that yet, but I think that would be, uh, those are helpful things that makes it more transparent than it was before. But there's still, you still have, for historical tribe, you still have quite a bit of work to do. Um, and it's just the time frame, so you don't have to go back to historical times, like a first contact, which 
you know, in the past was before the U.S. was even created, that you have to show that you're a historical tribe and maintain that uh, to the future. So, and that was mm-hmm. changed um, to 1789 at some point, which makes sense because you shouldn't have to prove that before the U.S. existed. Um, but now it's at some point prior to 1900, and you can rely on historians and anthropologists uh, to put that material together. Patty, click ahead. Here we are, October 2022. You folks have been at this um, about 25 years. Um, any thought as to when um, you'll actually accomplish this and, and gain this federal recognition? Yeah, well, we are busily working on getting our materials prepared to be submitted. We know that the regulations say that, um, you know, there's a certain amount of time to uh, for the Office of Federal Acknowledgement to review materials, and oftentimes those are postponed, um, and that anyone going through the process, even when you have a submitted petition, that it takes a long time for it to be reviewed. But our goal is to try to get our material submitted by the end of the year. And one of the other things that you raised is just having access to some of the um, the diocese documents, uh, other documents that um, may not have been readily available to us. We're working on getting some of those uh, documents that we haven't had access to so that we can bolster our petition. But we're working on our narratives, trying to finalize our narratives right now so that we can submit our petition. Patty, um are there other tribes there in Louisiana that are in a similar situation and at a similar point in terms of, of their efforts to gain federal recognition? There's four other Louisiana tribes on the Louisiana Gulf Coast who are not uh, fairly recognized, who are in the process. Uh, one tribe is the Jean-Charles Choctaw Nation that is being resettled. They're current, they have people who are currently being resettled right now because um, of the land loss and the erosion uh, compounded by climate change. And obviously if they were fairly recognized, or if we were fairly recognized, we'd be eligible for different funds that tribes are eligible for to maintain our cultural heritage. And so they're in the process. Um, the Grand Cayudulac, Biloxi Chittimacha are in the process. Um, the Bayou Lafourche, Biloxi Chittimacha are in the process. And I know that all of those tribes are working um, feverishly to get their materials uh, prepared, and the United Home Nation is still in the process. Well, let's talk a- about that. You, you mentioned some of these um, resources available and things like that, and, and what are some other issues that, that your tribe faces as a result of not having federal recognition? And um, I, I mean, I'm sure it would be an immediate benefit if you did gain federal recognition. Yeah, so for example, um, Hurricane Ida hit our community last year. The eye of Hurricane Ida, which was a Category 4 storm, uh, went straight through our community, and all but 12 homes in our community were livable after the storm. And uh, we had a lot of difficulties responding to the storm and still in the rebuilding process. But uh, not having that direct relationship with FEMA is harmful because it impacted being able to respond and um, assist with life-saving measures. Uh, So that is a challenge. And then also with the rebuilding effort, it's very challenging because most people in our village 
live on family property, which isn't um, really taken into account in the rebuilding process or dealing with FEMA. So, for example, my mom lived in a Palmetto house, and she was born in the late 1940s, and you can no longer live in a house on the ground that's um, sustainably built uh, because of the changes to the environment. So these changes have happened around us without any input or consultation, and there are decisions made on where levees will, will be built without consultation from us or what kind of restoration projects will be made. And if we had that federal status, we would be more likely to be part of those conversations, be able to apply for funds, have our emergency responders recognized. Um, and so that's a really important issue for us. Another really important issue is uh, schools. As I mentioned, our people weren't allowed to attend schools until the late 1960s. We speak in Indian French. Um, and two years ago, they closed our school where our children attend. It was 70% Native American. And so we've been fighting um, to have a new school opened in our community because we believe if you don't have a school, um, that's basically the lifeblood of your community and how people um, are going to move forward for the next generation. And so we are fighting really hard on those efforts, and it would be great to have support on those efforts. We think that that would be help with federal recognition. We also, in the 90s, filed an Aboriginal land title claim. There was an oil company trying to cut through one of our cemeteries, and people from our community went out with guns to stop them. Uh, the oil companies filed a trespass motion. We filed to remove that to federal court, uh, claiming Aboriginal land title. That case has been sitting in federal court, and the judge in that case said that she would not decide that case until the federal government decided whether to recognize us. And during that time period, over 30 years, there's been lots of changes to the land. Um, and we really are focused on protecting our sacred sites and burial mounds. And we think that we could do that more effectively if we were fairly recognized and had federal resources. Patty, how many federally recognized tribes are there in Louisiana? There are four federally recognized tribes. And are they supportive of your efforts? You know, that's an interesting question. We have at different times had some support, but um, we, we do not have a strong uh, relationship for um, some of these things. But for example, after the BP oil spill, we were part of a response effort to, for the shoreline. And um, so that means like after an oil spill, the Oil Pollution Act goes into effect. So it's an, a federal event. And we tried to work with the federal tribes to protect sacred areas um, that were going to be impacted, which initially worked really well. They then had some tribes from out of state who came in who um, basically wanted our tribal monitors fired. And when they found remains from ancestors who were washing up on shore, they requested that our tribal monitors be fired and that we not know about these remains, even though they acknowledged that they knew that these were our ancestors. And so that's a problem with not having federal acknowledgement. It's very painful for to know that your ancestors, um, you know, remains are being washed up after the fact and that someone else is making a decision about that without you, without consulting you, um, because of your non-federal status. 
That's a, a really good point, and, and it hits home. And, you know, we have folks that, that listen to this show from all over Native America, all parts of Indian country, and um, to hear some of these challenges that tribes that don't have federal recognition face, I think it's a real eye-opener for many of our listeners. And folks, if you've got a comment, if you've got a question, if you're involved in efforts of your own to gain federal recognition for your tribal community, what are you waiting for? Give us a call. We'll get your comments on the air. 1-800-996-2848. We're back with another guest and more conversation right after this break. Support by the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at Highlands University, now offering the opportunity to earn a culturally relevant clinical Master of Social Work degree without leaving your own community. This online MSW degree focuses on a small, supportive model with a clinical concentration. Students in rural areas, tribal communities, and or who live far from campus are given preference. Application deadline is October 15th at online.nmhu.edu. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Still time to get in on this conversation about state-recognized tribes or non-federally recognized tribes who are seeking federal recognition. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Back to the phones, Macha from East Lake, Minnesota. Macha, I really want to give you a chance to talk. Are you there? Yes. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Glad we're persistent here. We're going to get your comments on the air. Please, I understand you're a spokesman for your Minnesota tribe. Yeah, Sandy Lake, Rice Lake Band. We're as close as we've been for generations. We're going to achieve federal recognition very soon. We're the direct uh, descendants and the political successor people who've signed uh, over 10 treaties with the United States who continuous occupied uh, our reservations here in central Minnesota at Sandy Lake. And at Rice Lake, uh, we've tried through Congress, we've tried through federal courts, uh, we've came close many times before. Uh, lately, we've tried constitutional reform. Uh, in 1934, we voted for the Indian Reorganization Act. However, we were burned out of our uh, reservation by the United States government by 1940. In Minnesota, six tribes were amalgamated together and come together what's known as the Minnesota Chippewa tribe. We're aiming to be the seventh member of that tribe. Half of our people are enrolled in the Minnesota Chippewa tribe. Half of our people enrolled elsewhere. We're as close as we've ever been before. We're looking for Anishinaabe support on this issue. All of the okay. Ojibwe what? bands in Minnesota have supported us uh, okay, with a which, okay. Hey, I appreciate the passion. I appreciate the enthusiasm. Uh, we, we do have a, another guest we want to go to, but but congratulations. That sounds like you folks are making tremendous progress. I appreciate you being patient and, and getting on the phone line and, and sharing all these updates from Minnesota like you have. We've got a third guest on our show now joining us from the Kalapuya homelands, also known as Eugene, Oregon, is Rachel Cushman. She's the secretary and treasurer for the Chinook Indian Nation. She is a Chinook Indian Nation tribal member. Rachel, welcome to Native America Calling. So how am I? How you must Hello and thank you. Rachel, like some other non-federally recognized tribes that we've been talking about today, the Chinook once had federal recognition but lost it about 20 years ago. What caused that to happen? 
Um, it was a change in administration and politics. And and how did it play? I mean, for how long did you actually have recognition then? So I'll first by saying that we were in a 21-year process. We were one of the first tribes that entered the Office of Federal Acknowledgement process. Um, within a year of the process being created, we had uh, written a letter with an intent to go through the process, and then we went through the process. We submitted over 85,000 documents to the Office of Federal Acknowledgement, and um, during the Clinton administration, Kevin Gover, uh, who was the Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs, uh, realized that our, our application wasn't timely <laughs> and that there were there was some biases getting in the way from the Office of Federal Acknowledgement. And so he had uh, our application looked at by third-party experts, including himself, who's known as an Indian law expert. And he wrote the final determination of federal acknowledgement in 2001. And then there was, uh, you know, a... A period of time in which that folks could oppose it and the new administration came in so only it was only 18 months that we had formal federal acknowledgement um, and then it was rescinded on July 5th 2002 by okay. a uh, an engineer so I just want to be clear and say that a federal Indian law expert made the decision and the engineer reversed it <laughs> Okay. Okay. So 18 months. And, you know, aside from, from the legal issues and all of that, all of that stuff, I mean, just on a personal level, I mean, how did that impact your community emotionally to just like briefly have this federal recognition? Then it sounds like it was just snatched away. Um, it was devastating. Um, so I was 15 when the decision was made and I was an apprentice to the topmost fisheries biologist at the BIA in the Northwest region. Um, and so I was hired by the BIA as an Indian. Um, and I was actually on a work day um, that I read the newspaper and found out that we had lost our recognition and I was devastated. I have a lot of uh, trauma from that. My family has trauma. Folks cut their hair in mourning. Um, it, it was devastating um, because we were, we've been fighting for so long and that the BIA, when we went back east to sign all the paperwork, they had promised that it would be a home for us forever, that we'd be protected. And that was just, you know, just snatched, like you said, away from us. And, you know, it, it, there was a long time of mourning that occurred afterward. And um, we're still traumatized from it. <laughs> Now, you were in school at the time. Did it impact um, your ability to get an education in terms of, of tuition or scholarships that you might have been eligible for? It did, and it still does today. I'm actually a, in my doctoral program um, right now. But when I, was, when I was a student, when I was applying for scholarships, I applied for the Gates Millennium Scholarship, and I got it because um, I worked really hard for it. And... At the very last minute, they rescinded that because of my federal status, and that was heartbreaking. Hmm. And so I actually really struggled in school. I um, was homeless for a time. I went hungry. I had a lot of like really bad 
uh, nutritional issues because I had to make the decision. Am I going to have a place to live? If I Am I going to eat or am I going to buy my books and be successful in this? And I had to choose. Um, I had a lot of people counting on me. Um, so my, my whole life transformed at 15 to fighting for my nation. And I picked books. Um, you know, and to this day, it, it's even occurring, um, you know, my family, for folks who know about the Cobell lawsuit, my family is part of the class, but the leftover monies that went towards scholarships, my people can't even apply for. I can't apply for, even though my mom, my grandma, my auntie were all part of the class. Our tribe isn't on the drop-down menu. And, and as of recent as yesterday, the university in which I go to is providing a scholarship that will be tuition remission for all 574 federally recognized tribes so that doesn't include Chinat. even though you know I'm here doing work they're all aware um, it's just it's a really hard and it's constant slap in the face okay Rachel yeah really appreciate you sharing this information and tribe not listed in the drop-down menu that just about sums it all up here in 2022 we've got Randy listening in Merced California online Randy hello Hey, hello. How are you, Sean? What's going on? I'm doing great, Randy. What's on your mind? Well, I, a friend of mine actually called me from Albuquerque and told me about your uh, topic right now. So I uh, just wanted to make a quick uh, statement. I actually was up in uh, the tribal office. I'm a member of the Southern Sierra Miwok Nation. Uh, we're shooting again for tribal recognition. I just provided some more documentation this last Friday up at the office and trying to get another push on our uh, recognition, which is uh, the Yosemite National Park area and other outlying areas. So um, we keep our fingers crossed on this time around as well. And uh, it's quite the process because there's uh, seemingly they're always wanting more information. We have provided tons of documents over the years. And uh, I'm not that knowledgeable, but just basically what I've been hearing is uh, they, it's like they keep throwing in more glitches for us to prove who and what we are, you know? Okay. Yeah. Well, Randy, appreciate you calling in, and, and uh, my producers informed me that the Southern Sierra Miwok Nation, uh, one of the, uh, or the first people in the region that's now known as Yosemite National Park, so quite a proud legacy and history that you folks have up there in what is now Northern California. And I, I want to go back to 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 patty patty are you on the line still yeah okay so patty you know we're, we're hearing these stories about tribes just taking years decades in some cases uh generations to get fair recognition um in recent years what's the fastest that you've ever heard of a tribe gaining federal recognition yeah it takes uh decades there was a gao report that um outline the time and expense that it takes for tribes to go through the federal acknowledgement process. The, there are some tribes who chose to go through the congressional process because of the delays in the federal acknowledgement process, but not every tribe has that option because you have to have U.S. senators who are going to support you in that effort. Are you familiar with any tribes that have gained federal recognition start to finish within less than five years, for example? No. Okay. All right. Well, Rachel, I want, I want to go back to you and ask you right now, um, where is the Chinook Nation in the process of receiving federal recognition? Where are you folks at? 
So um, right now we we have a campaign, Chinook Justice, going on. You can find information about it on ChinookJustice.org. Um, but we, in 2017, we filed a lawsuit against the federal government. Um, just going in real quick about Office of Federal Acknowledgement. The Office of Federal Acknowledgement uh, ruling does not allow repetition, um, and we're fighting that. Um, their current rule as stands, the court found to be arbit arbitrary and capricious, so uh, they're in the process of holding uh, hearings about that ruling, and um, we'll know more later. But Chinook has a congressional route that we're taking right now, and we're working with delegates in both Oregon and Washington on a bill right now. Um, any Indian Affairs bills through the Senate are being held up because of the Lumbee recognition case, um, which is, you know, rightfully so, and we're, we're hoping luck for them and that they can get that done so that we can get our work done. Rachel, I'm thinking there's got to be a huge cost here in terms of legal fees, um, these, you know, these historical documents, these studies, the research. What does this all cost for a tribe to, to go through all of these hurdles in order to gain federal recognition? It costs millions of dollars. Um, luckily, Chinook Indian Nation has an all pro bono legal team that's working for us right now, which has been, you know, lifesaver for our community. Um, we have a lot of, we, like our one of the previous callers said, we are a 501c3, so we do have um, some grant funding for supporting some of the work that we do. We have individual donors. We have a huge individual donors um, list of folks who support us um, and who are giving towards our, our restoration efforts. Um, and, you know, so it, it costs a lot, but... But we have a lot of people backing us, including all of our immediate neighboring tribes who have either given, um, you know, people power support, vocal support, or monetary support, or both. Um, so Chinook is blessed in that way that we have a lot of folks who see what we're doing, know what we're doing, and know what's just and right, and are supporting us in our efforts. Mm -hmm. Now, Rachel, as I understand it, though, some of the neighboring tribes were not always supportive of the Chinook's efforts, and now they are. What caused them to change their minds and now be in your corner? To be clear, there was one community that okay. was not supportive, and that was because there was fears that if federally recognized, we would usurp their treaty rights because Chinook Indian Nation, individual tribal people, Indian individual Indians have trust lands. Um, allotments on their reservation and are the majority landholder. We've had lots of government-to-government -government meetings dispelling any uh, desire to control their reservation or their their treaty rights. And so um, I think that some of the support uh, that change of heart comes from, you know, just dispelling fears. And, 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 you know, in the Pacific Northwest, we talk about within the Indian communities about uh, – a united Indian country is a stronger Indian country, and that's very much true. And um, as of Friday, one of our neighbors, who's always been supportive of us, who's federally recognized, said that Indian country isn't complete without Chinook Indian Nation at the table. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and that begs the question, Rachel, because as you know, we have listeners from, from all over Native America, many of whom are, are federally recognized tribal members. Some of them are not. But, but why should everybody, every tribal person, every Native person, why do they need to be concerned and what do they need to understand about this issue of who becomes federally recognized or not? What would you like to say to, to all Native people listening today? All Native people need to be aware that nobody's protected and that a united Indian country is a safer Indian country. That, you know, we we experienced the termination era. We experienced all the hardships. And we, we're an important player in U.S. history. We saved Lewis and Clark from dying, and the U.S. government still treats us this way. Nobody's protected 100%. Termination era can happen again, and we need to stand together. All righty. Termination era could come again. It could happen again, perhaps. So, uh, Rachel, next steps. Um, what's what's the, the next hurdle that you folks are, are really looking to to overcome in order to, to gain this federal recognition? Um, we're urging folks to support the Lumbee community because, like I said, all processes are being held up because all, you know, congressional processes are being held up because of this. Let's get them recognized. Let's work on it. Like, let's do the right thing. And, um, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, let me ask you about the Lumbee really quick. They're in North Carolina. And um, so I, I know um, it, it passed through the House, and now it's waiting, I think, on a, a vote in the Senate. What do you think is the likelihood that the Lumbee will gain federal recognition within the next year or two? They have amazing congressionals who will stop at nothing and put a halt to all other work until this is done. And I believe that it's going to happen. And, and it's really an amazing thing to see congressionals really take the back of a tribe like that. More congressionals should be like that. Well, unfortunately, we have reached the end of our hour. I want to thank all of our guests, Carrie Malloy, Rachel Cushman, and Patty ferguson Bonnie, for a timely, insightful discussion about Native American tribes seeking federal recognition. Join us tomorrow for a discussion about a new program to provide Indigenous food hubs in schools and prisons. Thank you for listening. I'm Sean Spruce. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. Work with experts in the field to form strategies and build relations to better the future of repatriation at the 8th Annual Repatriation Conference, October 11th, 12th, and 13th, hosted by the Association on American Indian Affairs and the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians. Learn more at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. 
Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.